We are, uh, during the month of May, in a sermon series entitled, Family Life is Messy. Is that news to anyone, that family life is messy? Everybody knows that okay? And then this morning's sermon, we're thinking particularly about the question, who wins the arguments at your house? And I was going to do a poll and have you raise your hand, but I decided, don't have time to deal with that right now. So uh, Hannah and I are going to team preach. We're going to do a duet sermon. Uh, we've been planning this for several months, and uh, it's been fun to do the planning and the sermon prep together. And right now I want to read from Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 21, and I'll read through chapter 6, verse 3. And so you listen very prayerfully as God's word is shared. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. Just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind, yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I am applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So Grandpa was celebrating his 100th birthday, and everyone had gathered, family and friends, and they were admiring his great physical stamina, his great physical condition. He said, well, there's a story behind that. He said, I was married for 70 years to my sweetheart, and on our wedding night, we made an agreement that when we had an argument, the person who was wrong would take a walk, and I've enjoyed a lot of fresh air and exercise. <laughs> and while that story may be fun to hear, Hannah and I are hoping that the same person in your home doesn't always win the arguments. And we're just as hopeful that the same person in your home doesn't always lose the arguments. I think Scripture would teach us that we're supposed to take turns. And that's what the scripture lesson this morning is about. It's about that whole idea that every person's valued, that every person matters, that, that it's not really about winning. It's about something deeper and richer. And Jesus' life and the rest of scripture teaches the same, that every person in the home, including the children, are people of worth and value. Their, their opinions, their perspective, their viewpoints are to be valued, and they matter too. So we live in a Pinterest-perfect world. 
We each carry with us expectations about how things are supposed to look and how they're supposed to work. And family is no exception. But the truth is that our stories of faith and our own personal experiences show us that there's not necessarily one perfect way to do family. God did not make robots. Each family system is unique because each person is unique. And sometimes I think we do more damage trying to fit into a certain family mold than we would if we instead asked God, how have you uniquely created and called each person in our family? How are we gifted to love each other well? The church has a checkered past when it comes to marriage and family. We have not always acted Christ-like in our pursuit of Christ-likeness. So when we approach texts of tension, like the one today in Ephesians 5, it's important for us to ask, where is Christ in this text? Speaking of the text, the passage of scripture that we read to you uh, is a literary unit, and it's important that we pause and think about how that fits together. There's a paragraph sense to it. There's a big picture, big unit piece to it. And uh, if we read the Greek New Testament carefully, we will see that, that it's important to include all of it in, in the circle that is the body of the text. Uh, we always want to begin reading with verse 22, but the text actually begins, the, the passage, the big paragraph, big idea begins in verse 21. Imagine the, the writer of Ephesians taking a big red sharpie and drawing a circle around the big paragraph thought that he's trying to develop, and he doesn't begin in verse 22, he, he moves up and begins in verse 21. We want to begin in verse 21, some of us uh, do, but some of us want to begin in verse 22, which says, wives be subject to your husbands, but actually the text begins in verse 21, be subject to one another. That's where it starts. And when you start there, a bunch of guys who have proof texted this passage of scripture to insist on male dominance begin to get a little nervous and it gets really quiet. And you start hearing crickets and some nervous clearing of the throats. Because this passage has been used to, to purport male dominance. But in reality, we begin with verse 21 and the be subject to one another. I have a pastor friend who's dear to me. We don't see each other very often because we live in different parts of the world. Finally had a chance to sit down to lunch with him one time and sort of catch up. And my heart broke when I heard his story about how his marriage was empty and how uh, he and his wife had reached this stalemate on everything, and his heart was breaking. And, and with, with really deep sadness in his eyes, he said this to me, For years I have been leading her. I didn't do so well serving her. Did you catch that? Some men want to be all about the leading, but they miss all that serving that's in the Scripture. 
There's all the difference in the world between enforced subjugation and a voluntary yieldedness in love. Enforced subjugation is from the outside, it's external. It's like a military chain of command. A sergeant tells a private what to do and the private doesn't say, let's, down, let's sit down and talk about my feelings. I have a perspective on this. The private does what the private is told because there's a chain of command. It's external. But biblical mutuality is not externally, externally enforced subjugation. It is a mutual yielding in love. And that's more like a battery pack that's on the inside because I love this person and because I'm loyal to this person and because I trust this person and this person does back to me. Then there's that mutuality. And that's what Paul talked about in this scripture. Paul is not talking in Ephesians 5 about ec external enforced subjugation. He's talking about mutuality. About that loving yieldedness toward one another. And where did we get that concept? Where do you suppose Paul came up with that? Of course, in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only on the cross giving his life for us, but in coming to earth in the first place, emptying himself of all of his privileges and all of his rights. As verse 25 says, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that's how the husband is to love the wife. That is that mutuality that scripture teaches. Now, when we learn a new concept or we're rethinking an old idea, the idea of mutuality, sometimes it helps to push off against it by opposites. What's opposite of that word? Well, uh, some Bible commentaries had some really good things to say about this. Mutuality is the opposite of having our own way. Mutuality is the opposite of always having the last word. Mutuality is the opposite of valuing my opinion above other people's opinions. Mutuality is the opposite of insisting on my rights. Think about spouse's intention or parent-child tension or sibling tension or extended family tension and how much, how much rides on our insistence on our way and our rights rather than a loving yieldedness and mutuality. I'm a huge Beatles fan and my mind went to this song, and I'm not going to sing it. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, think, about, think about this in light of today's scripture. You say yes, I say no. You say stop, I say go, go, go. You say goodbye, I say hello. I don't know why you say goodbye, I say hello. I say hi, you say... You say why, I say I don't know. Oh, no. You say goodbye. I say hello. <laughs> you know, it's like, that's that opposite attracts type stuff where the tension is where we're called to grow in mutuality. Mutuality is a sweet reasonableness that gives up the right to be right. It's a yielding of our claims to win the argument. It's giving up the claim to have the last word. It's giving ourselves permission to drop it and let it go. So it would be an understatement to say that this 
text has been used in ways that are hurtful to women and children and persons living in bondage or servitude. So when we interpret the Bible, it's helpful and important to ask. Am I using my interpretation of the Bible to dominate or control or manipulate someone else? Or is my interpretation of the Bible one that is life-giving and empowering to other people? Over the centuries, lots of well-meaning people have prioritized the family hierarchy or structure that's described in Ephesians 5 rather than prioritizing the imitation of Christ in family relationships. The focus of the early church was not to preserve the hierarchical structure of the Greco-Roman household. The focus of the early church was to empower the early believers to bring Christ into those existing structures in ways that were actually radically countercultural and dangerous. To give you a little bit of background, ancient philosophers as early as the 4th century BC wrote about their belief that the household is a microcosm of the society. And so the household hierarchy must reflect the hierarchy of the empire in order to preserve the empire. The husband, therefore, in these ancient philosophies, was to rule over the slaves and the children and the wife. So this is not a biblical idea. This is a cultural idea into which the mothers and fathers of the faith sought to inject the spirit of Christ. So when we're trying to think theologically about men's and women's roles in the family, we need to remember and balance what we hear in passages like Ephesians 5 with what we read in the Gospels where men and women are depicted as model disciples. And what we read in the early church writings and letters where men and women are key leaders in the early church. Sometimes women were the first people in their cities to be baptized and plant churches, like Lydia. And I think it's very important for us to filter our biblical interpretation and conclusions through what is really the most radical and compelling and earth-shaking theology of the early church, which we read in Galatians 3. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female because all of you are one in Christ Jesus. The call of the Christ follower is to imitate Christ and for our relationships to be infused with Christ-likeness, to wrestle and struggle and work to find unity in Christ and not to bicker and bash about who is in charge, but to empower each other and to work to cultivate one another's well-being.
Because family life is messy and arguments are not easy, Doyle and I want to offer some handles, some practical takeaways for you from our text today. The first one is really simple but really, really important. Ask for Christ's help. We have to acknowledge that there are areas of our lives in which submission and mutuality do not come naturally or easily. Areas of weakness, areas where we struggle. And your struggle might be different than the person sitting beside you. Maybe your big struggle is you have difficulty saying, I'm sorry. Uh, Your struggle might be that you have real difficulty seeing things from another person's point of view. Or maybe when you become uh, upset or agitated, uh, you, you get loud and raise your voice or you uh, perhaps begin to use abusive language that is aggressive and hurtful. Uh, we all have those struggles. What we have to come to grips with is that mutuality does not come naturally for us. It only comes supernaturally. So Christ in us must replicate his his submission, his uh, loving yieldedness, because we can't do that on our own. And so we ask him for help. Nothing about mutuality comes naturally. And so not only practicing that individually, I'm still on number one because we're camping there a little bit, uh, not only do we practice it individually, but we practice it as a family. Family meetings are an important thing to do. And at family meetings to ask yourself, how are we doing on mutuality? Where did we see ourselves practicing that loving yieldedness this week? Or where did we have an experience where we could have have done a little better regarding mutuality? And uh, also, taking stock of the common themes of your arguments and, and maybe logging that and looking at it and looking at larger patterns and, and looking at those patterns in light of the biblical theme of mutuality, asking Christ for help in all of those ways. So, number two, you'll see that these are like kindergarten-level skills, but obviously we haven't really mastered them yet, right? So we all need to remember them occasionally. Number two, listen Learning to listen requires extensive practice. In terms of relationship skills, it's an Olympic-level skill, okay? Listening means hearing the words a person says and also being willing to hear the meaning behind those words. And this is especially important with children, And it's one of the reasons I think it's so important for us to take time to listen to children. Because often what they need to tell us is not what they tell us. We have to listen for that. So after you have an argument, one way to sort of measure how you're doing in developing your listening skills is to ask, can I remember what my partner or my child said to me? In this argument? After the discussion, ask yourself, am I mulling over what I said or taking time to really think about what the other person said? Truly listening is an art. 
And you may find in family discussions that you're not in a place to really listen, like in the heat of an argument or in the middle of a crisis. And so sometimes it's best to take a break and wait and then come back and talk again when everyone is ready to listen. And there is nothing wrong with that. And sometimes we have disagreements and difficulties in our families where we have to practice this for days or weeks or months on a certain issue. And that does not mean that you are failing. Number three, be honest. Relationships are the most rich when we can be honest with each other. It's not healthy to hide things from each other. It's not healthy to continually smooth things over or just go with, the other pers- with what the other person says all the time. It's important to ask, am I aware of my feelings, my true feelings, and am I, am I sharing my true feelings in a healthy way? And it's important to ask, are we really teaching honesty in our family through what we practice, telling the truth? even about the hard stuff. Some of the best marriage advice that David and I received before we got married was that marriage is not 50-50, right? Like David and I don't complete each other, okay? Marriage is 100-100. Each partner brings the entirety of him or herself to the altar and to the relationship. And we do that over and over again in our conversations and in our decision-making. So be honest and be yourself. Bring your whole self. Lastly, say I'm sorry. Ladies and gentlemen, news flash. Okay? Part of being family means that sometimes you will need to say you're sorry out loud. And you will need to mean it. Truly mean it. And boy, is that hard, right? Truly have the humility to own inside and outside that I was in the wrong. I messed up. This is such a basic skill, but we are so bad at it. That ego is strong, right? Saying you're sorry is not weakness. It does not diminish your authority, as a parent. In fact, I would say it has the opposite effect because what you're doing is you're building relationship capital so that you have a foundation of respect from which to work with in your parenting relationship. Saying you're sorry is part of loving another person and valuing your relationship with that person enough to verbalize a sense of humility, saying, I'm sorry with sincerity. As Hannah and I uh, prepared this sermon this week, I was uh, reminded when our children were small, I messed up so many times. And I do remember something powerful happened in my relationship with them when I would apologize. When I would say the words, I'm sorry, and I would, I would specify You know, I lost my temper. I didn't hear the full story. I was preoccupied. I got it wrong. I I messed up. And something powerful happened 
when I had the courage and the humility to say to my children, I'm sorry. Richard Foster defines submission as laying down the terrible burden of always getting my way. Laying down the terrible burden of always getting my way. I'm guessing that there are some of us this morning who are tired of carrying that burden around of always being right, of always having our way, because it costs so much. And I'm wondering if uh, right where we are this morning, some of us would be ready to unload that burden. Just take a deep breath. Say, I don't want to carry that anymore. I don't need to carry that anymore. Take a deep breath and just let it go. Just breathe in and out and then unload that burden. Let it go. Doesn't that feel good? Let's pray. Open our hearts, gracious God, to your word that is always instructive and always light to be faithful in all that you're calling us to in all relationships and to learn the sweetness of submission and mutuality. Amen.